Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape from Vox Media headquarters in New York. Here with the great James Panawazic. See how I pronounce that very slowly. Did I get it correct? Like a pro. Like a pro. He is the chief TV critic for the New York Times and someone I've been reading for a very, very long time. Um, since the original dot-com boom when you were at Salon. Uh, a long, long time ago, yeah. In, in the web 1.0 days. Um, I'm delighted that you're at the Times now because you are someone who likes television, which was not always the case when people wrote about, time, wrote, wrote about TV at the Times. Um, and you're writing about TV at an important time at the Times. And, and also, uh, in the last couple of years, you've fused this really interesting thing where you're writing about TV and politics together. Um, you just wrote a, a, a piece about Sean Spicer going on Dancing with the Stars. You're all peppered up about that. Um, yep. w- was, and we can talk about that piece in a second. This will be weeks from now. So we, we've all forgotten <laughs> there will this. have been, there will have been like 17 different yes. like controversies. Yes. Have... No, one, no one will remember this, but you can go look it up. It's a great <laughs> yeah. piece. Um, did you know when you went to the times that you, you were going to be writing about politics and TV at the same time? Yeah, I mean, not politics and TV per se, but, you know, before I was at uh, The Times, I was at Time magazine for like 16 years. Uh, and that's a news magazine. Heard and, it. you know, I was I was the TV critic there. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always sort of believed and, and was encouraged back there to, you know, sort of in addition to the sort of – you know, entertainment critic aspect of the job to to write about um, why television, why the arts generally overlap with society and politics, which is to say, you know, you write about this stuff because you're writing about why people care about this stuff. So, uh, you know, when the, the Times had an opening and uh, I interviewed with them, it, it wasn't per se, oh, we need somebody who's good on politics. There's an election coming up you know, whatever. Uh, but it's, you know, that they, you know, the Times, which which I love about writing there, uh, sees the importance of connecting its coverage of the arts to larger issues in the society, uh, to, and that, you know, that can be politics, uh, that can be, you know, uh, uh, identity issues, it can be, you know, you know, now Me Too, you know, which happened since I was there, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But again, this is, you know, all like, you know, people get invested in TV for reasons. And I think not all critics are necessarily comfortable about writing about that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they, they were looking for somebody who who was. So, you know, I mean, it's funny when I, when I first started interviewing at The Times, uh, you know, Donald Trump was it was just he was just a, you know, a, a gleam in the politics. Has he, has desk's he, taken, has he taken the escalator ride down yet? He had when I first because, you know, it was a process when I first started interviewing. No, it was before he was announced uh-huh. before he had announced. I was still at, at, at uh, Time magazine then. I started at The Times uh, Labor Day weekend. 2015. So it was, you know, just after the first Republican debate of the 2015 election. Oh, yeah. So he had. So he he was in. Yeah, he was in. He yeah. was in at that point. He was. He was. He was the he was, novelty. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So you know, it it was it was just starting to gear up at that point. And and you know, honestly, just from the standpoint of you know being somebody who is really interested in writing about how television affects the larger world. 
Well, here was the guy from The Frickin' Apprentice, you know, running for head of America. Wheelhouse. Yeah, and, and I just happened to come in at that time. And well, this is a long lead-in to your book, which we'll, we will still get to in a second. But I just wanted to point out that now when the Democrats have their debates, you are now doing sort of daily co- – not daily co- – you, you are you, – the next day you have written a very smart, uh, comprehensive piece. It's both a, a, it's a, a TV critics review and it's also – you're getting into the politics of it. Yeah. Um, often I think it's more incisive than anything a, a beat reporter or a political analysis would do. So well, if you. you're not reading, James, you, you should be if you're remotely interested in this stuff and if you're listening to this podcast. I think you are. Um, I'm going to hold up the book for people not to see. But this is the book you've written. It's it's perfectly designed for me. Thank you very much. It's called The Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the Fracturing of America. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can go and buy it today. So go buy it for James. Please. Please. Um, you, I beg of you. you describe, I have children. For his kids. You describe this book as applied TV criticism. Yeah. What does uh, that mean? Well, I mean, it sort of, you know, follows up on what we were talking about, which is that, uh, you know, even as a television critic or or any arts critic, you know, music critics, theater critics, et cetera, um, who tries to connect your work with larger social issues, um, generally, and there's nothing wrong with this, generally that's sort of an indirect thing. You know, it might be writing about, you know, how we look at the Cosby show now after, you know, Bill Cosby's been disgraced mm-hmm. and, you know, how this, this uh, you know, it, uh, resonates with the history of that show and with the current moment, et cetera, et cetera. Or it might, you know, it might be things like, you know, how does The Walking Dead uh, sort of allegorize, if that's a word, um, you know, fear of the other? Uh, you know, the, the things like that, you're sort of dealing with this stuff on, you know, a metaphorical level mm-hmm. that is, you know, very, very important. Uh, and it's something that, you know, done for a long time. Uh, but but it it is sort of, you know, it it's sort of the, you know, a, a, a theoretical application. I realized, you know, especially once Trump won the election, that as a TV critic in my position with my background, I had a chance to do something that like, really hasn't ever been done, which is that, you know, a a TV character entered the real world and ran an election and won and became the president of America and developed this, you know, rabid following uh, and upended, you know, upended politics and sort of changed the tempo of the life that we live in. It was was basically, in other words, I, I, I could take these tools, I needed to take these tools that I've applied to television, to all the forms of television that Donald Trump created himself in, reality TV, pro wrestling, yep. you know, you know uh, talk shows, cable news, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and directly apply this to, you know, and here is how this character evolved over the years, and here's the culture that he evolved in and that he adapted himself to. You know, I don't think of this as a book of, you know, a political book in the sense that I'm talking about, you know, my Opinions on how the healthcare system it's should be run. Right you're not doing deep reporting from inside the White House. Uh, you're not going to find a new scandalous uh, quote coming out of this. I don't think. No, it's 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 cultural criticism. Right. You know, this is not. You know, I did not find dig up any old Apprentice tapes. Sorry for anybody who was you know uh, wishing for that. It's 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 a book of cultural analysis, and that's something that I actually think is you know pretty important. Again, because somebody who was a cultural phenomenon for four decades used that culture and culture warring directly to enter the White House. And, you know, I wanted to take an extended look at exactly mechanically, technologically, culturally, economically, you know, how that happened, how all the pieces of this came together. Right. So you're telling the Trump story sort of as he becomes a public figure and then his rise and fall and then rise again. And then you're also tracking the way that media has changed over time and then the kind of media we consumed has changed. So this is a book that's that talks about, you know, going from broadcast to cable and then what the Internet means for for the a rise of Trump. But you're also talking about specific TV characters like uh, Tony Soprano or um uh, Richard Hatch. Richard that was Hatch. a name that I had not thought about for 15, 20 years. 
I, I'm I'm hoping that there will be a, a lot of memories tweaked by <laughs> by by the, this book and people. Yeah, uh, Sipowitz from NYPD. It's a whole bunch of sort of uh, anti-heroes. anti-heroes. Yeah, um, and we can talk about a bunch of them um, and sort of and sort of how they sort of track the the Trump rise. Um, but while we're at it, um, why is Richard Hatch important to talk about for this for this for for this purpose? So Rich, Richard Hatch. Was that for for people who don't remember uh, uh, this far back was the first winner of Survivor and back when Survivor Survivor is still a really big show doesn't get talked about very much in, in places like this but is still a huge show but at the time was this amazing phenomenon you said fifty five million uh, I think fifty million plus watched its first finale I mean it, it was just like an amazing cover of Time magazine and elsewhere phenomenon an audience first that doesn't in no longer exists outside of the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, basically, like in, in uh, basically, and yeah, the size of audience that generally does not occur anymore it was just this huge, huge hit. And its first winner, um, Richard Hatch, was a guy who came on and realized that you know Survivor was a social game, and that it was about you know I don't think I need to explain the whole premise of Survivor probably to most people. You but, survive. You, know, uh, you survive. People get voted off. Uh, you make alliances, and you know he realized that the way you do this in part is through duplicity and and forming alliances and backstabbing people and lying and and being entertaining about it. Um, it basically, Richard Hatch, tell me if this sounds familiar, was somebody who won an election by telling people what a bad guy he was, right? Because like what, what Richard Hatch did was he went through this, this elimination contest, uh, a week after week after week. Uh, and then in the end, uh, survivor comes down to a vote in which, uh, you're voting for someone rather than voting somebody off, right? They're, they're, they're in this case, two finalists and they're each making the case. Why should you vote for me? And Richard Hatch's argument is basically the opposite argument of most, most of the moral arguments of television, uh, back in TV's old days of, you know, Westerns and good guys in white hats and right. bad guys in black hats. It was, you know, I'm not really a good guy. You, you know, don't like but me, there was this game. But... You don't like me. I did all this, you know, terrible crap to you, and I was better at doing it than any of you were to me. You know, uh, you know, I was I was the master of this game. You may not like me. You may not want your kids to be like me. But you know. Nature is red in tooth and claw, and it's not a pretty world, and you got to look out for yourself. And I did it better than anybody else, and you got to admire the way that I played the game. You can map so much of that onto Donald Trump's yep. arguments. We didn't even need to say that part out loud. We, our, our audience could, could figure that part out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's, it's good to yeah. spell it out. And, and I mean, it, it's, I'm glad you did because I have thought a lot uh, about the fact that Trump had been boosted by reality TV, but I thought of it in the most basic way, which is he presented himself as a rich, successful businessman, and people assume that rich, successful businessmen, one, are, if they say they are, and two, that means they have competence, Yeah, right? It turns out most of that is not true, and he, dubious business skills, but that's about as far as I went, and you draw this larger idea, which is he attracts people who like the fact that he's not necessarily a good person. Yes, um, and and their their eyes are open to it, and in fact, that's an attribute they like going into this. Well, if he's that bad of a guy and he's on my side, that's good. Uh, yeah, and you know, if you know, life is sort of a, a dog eat dog elimination competition. Uh, you know, if it, it and, and you know, this is again, if you go back to Donald Trump's rally, so much of the language is, you know. You think we're all so nice and civilized, but it's horrible out there. It's a jungle. People are coming to kill your kids. People are pouring over the border. ISIS wants to cut your head off. Like, you know, who gives a crap if the president is nice? Right. You know, um, which again— In fact, sir, if he's nice, it's probably bad. Is probably a liability. It's a weakness in this world, right? You leave yourself vulnerable. You you lit people you lit all the 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 phonies who pretend to have integrity get over on it or you let the uh, over on you or or you let the worst people out there take advantage of you right and the other explicit thing you point out here is is that Trump likes conflict he thinks conflict is inherently a good thing you can see sort of the way he manages things and and it's telling too again today we're talking about whether or not uh, Trump is accusing Jews of being having dual loyalty again this will probably have moved on. 
well, it's many, many news cycles from yeah, the time yeah. this airs. Back um, in August. But you <laughs> know, we've, a... we've spent several years going, what, what is Trump doing? Does he, is he trying to distract us? What's his strategy here? And, and we've sort of stopped talking about that now. And I think a lot of folks now assume that, well, he's just saying something that comes to mind or he's just trying to change a subject. Um, but having read your book, I think, oh, no, he, he likes – one specific thing he likes to do is if he knows something is upsetting to people, really for whatever reason – He'll do more of that because he thinks conflict's inherently a good thing, and if he's creating conflict, that's good. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, I you know, I actually I still hear a lot uh, of the you know discussion about you know is he being strategic, trying to distract us, or is this you right. know instinct or whatever. You know, I, I sort of in my focus in the book is more, uh, you know, um, I am not going to try to find the real Donald Trump if there is one. For for my purposes, and honestly, I think for America's purposes, Donald Trump's not a person. Like you know, like like there there is like a real person who had a father and a childhood yeah. and blah 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 blah. Um, Doesn't matter. He's a guy. In what TV. Matter, the guy? Who, yes, he is a TV character. He's been a TV performance before The Apprentice, before his presidency, for decades, and that character is what matters. What is what is you know calling the shots in the world, and 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 one constant of that character. And to me, like whether this is, you know, entirely strategic or impulsive or both is kind of a parlor game. But what, one constant of that character is that its response to any situation of conflict is to increase the conflict, yeah. to heighten the conflict, to lean into it, to double down on it. If there's something that can explode, it should explode. You know, like if there's, you know, if there's a bomb, it should go off. You always ratchet things up. You don't ratchet things down. And that is a mindset that parallels Television, a TV camera, particularly TV, like live TV, you yep. know, which is which is which is really we can talk a little bit about how, you know, if you want about how TV is really two different things. Like it's like a fictional art form, you know, for scripted entertainment and so on. And it's also a communications medium, a pipeline for like live images and news. And and, and that that is really what, you know, Donald Trump has has thrived in this, this sort of nonfictional TV, which is all about conflict. And, you know, not necessarily – things don't necessarily need to make, you know, narrative – there doesn't need to be, you know – There needs to be some spectacle. There needs to be spectacle. There needs to be excitement. There always needs to be something new, and the new thing needs to be more shocking than the last thing. There doesn't necessarily need to be narrative flow or common sense. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like if you watch an hour of CNN – Unless it's like a documentary, there's not a narrative arc to it. You know, there's what Neil Postman, the 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 media mm -hmm. theorist, called the now this sensibility, yeah. right? Which is you segue from one thing to another to another to another. Like that's and you Donald, double back on yourself and keep talking about the same thing over and, and over. And that's Donald Trump's brain. Yeah, it's like you listen to Donald Trump at a rally, and it's like you know now this one one more uh, again read the book, but then yeah. you, you you flick at a bunch of these uh, fictional characters, and again you can sort of see the parallel. But there was a great one because I, I hadn't thought of it, but when you, when you laid it out, I'm like, of course. I don't. I'll never get the character's name right, but it's Rodney Dangerfield in Caddyshack. Uh, uh, Al Cervic. Okay. Al Cervic. No, yeah. He's just he's Rodney Dangerfield in, in Caddyshack. <laughs> That's what we all. Yeah. Think. Right. I, yeah. I, uh, Zach Jelani, have you guys seen Caddyshack? Jelani says no. Zach's okay. Yeah. So this is a great age divider. So if you're yeah, our yeah, age, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you grew up on it. Right. So for our younger audience that has not seen Caddyshack, explain why that's an important character. So Rodney Dangerfield's character in Caddyshack, Huge which movie. is. Uh, it was, uh, and, and for us. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, comedy classic from 1980. Um, that, that is set uh, at a, a country club, a golf club. Uh, it's one of the, you know, it's sort of one of the classic what they call like snobs versus slobs yep. movies of the late 70s, early 80s, Animal House, you know, Meatballs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so Al Cervic, who, who Ronnie Dangerfield plays is this obnoxious, boorish, rich guy who all the stuck-up people, the other stuck-up rich people at the country club, hate. He's probably richer than the other people at the, at he, the country he club. He is definitely richer than the other people at the country club. And this gives him the freedom not to care about them. And it makes it gives him this, this liberating, and this is what made him like run away with the movie to the audience, this liberating thing of... I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has fuck you money. Yeah. Right? That, that's the dream. I, I can I can have all this money 
and I can be myself. Dress with, how with, I want. I can dress how I want. I can keep my own habits. I, I don't have to put you. on a I show for anybody. Sense of decorum. Who gives a crap it. what you think about me? Yeah, exactly. You know, I you know, I'm gonna like I'm gonna get the biggest, grossest yacht and you know, just like tear through the water on it and splash water all over your christening ceremony for your nice little sailboat. Uh and and, and yeah, it's it's And you can't kick me out of your club because I'm richer than you. Uh, exactly. And, and, and his character is opposed in the movie to, uh, Ted Knight's character, Judge, Judge Smales. Smales, Judge Smales, who is the, you know, stick up his ass, like, you know, uh, uh, uh uptight rich guy who sort of runs the country club and cannot stand him. And this all came to mind during the 2016 debates to me. Uh, when I'm watching Donald Trump in action in the debates and seeing him go up against Jeb Bush. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump is a pop culture figure. He has lived in pop culture all of his life. You know, it is not, I'm not saying that, you know, he sat down with a notebook and like plotted all this out, but these archetypes come to him because archetypes are how, you know, leaders and uh, uh, candidates in politics tell stories. And, and he is falling into this, 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 this you know, the, these types of making himself, he's like the Clampets against Mr. Drysdale. He's Rodney Dangerfield against Ted Knight. You know, it's like, it's the, 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 the rich guy that you want to be against the fucking snobby rich guy that everybody hates. Um, and he just put, you know, particularly in the Republican primary, also against Mitt Romney, when mm -hmm. Mitt Romney came out against him in, in March 2016. Um, he just, he played that up to the hilt. Uh, and, you know, I think what a lot of the people who were attacking him within the Republican Party and a lot of the people, you know, including people in journalism as well as politics who thought, you know, well, surely, you know, Donald Trump may be leading the polls, but, you know, he'll never actually yeah. win. Uh, you know, I think what, the, what they didn't see was, was that there were these, these powerful pop cultural archetypes that he was playing into that put this audience on his side right. precisely were, because of the things that they slash them. we were all identifying me as Ben Carson or whoever, whatever, whatever, any other Republican sort of fringe candidate that had become popular briefly in the past and then eventually sort of flamed out. And we we didn't see, oh, no, no, this is this is a really deep popular American archetype. Yes. You know, what, what I try to, if I can just you yeah. know, say it quickly, I and mean, we, we might talk about this more later, like, well, one thing that I really try to avoid doing as, as a critic, and e even before, you know, before I wrote this book, is I'm always skeptical of thinking, and I try to avoid the, the sort of simplistic thinking that, like, you know, pop culture brainwashes people. You know, violent culture makes people violent, et cetera. Or, you know, reality TV makes people conservative. The Apprentice made people vote for Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think these effects are all complex. But what this what this is here and what I think is extremely powerful, and all politicians work in the system, whether they know it or not, um, is that these these archetypes exist there. These stories are powerful because they're metaphorical. And metaphors are powerful, more powerful than literal speech because they say more than literal speech in a smaller amount of time. And you can use these types once they're created, once they're out there in the culture, uh, to, to tell your story. And uh, stories you know, and narratives yeah. are important, and we should talk about them yes. and understand where they come from. If you enjoy listening to me and James talk about a 30, 40-year-old, how old is, is Caddyshack? Almost exactly 40 years old. 40-year-old yeah. uh, uh, movie. Well, I'm, you're out of luck because we're not going to talk about Caddyshack anymore, but we will talk about more stuff we'll back in a minute. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Back here with James Ponowazic. How do you do, James? Uh, I'm doing good. No, no. How did I do with your pronunciation? Oh, I'm sorry. You, I've, been, you, you, I've, been, I've been fretting about pronouncing your name for a couple weeks now. You nailed. You pronounced it so well I didn't even notice. <sighs> okay. It good. was like hearing my own voice. Um here to talk about Audience of One and some other stuff as well, but go buy Audience of One. It's great. Um, 
I do want to talk about sort of the, the structure of media and how that's changed and how that has helped create Trump. Um, again, if you're listening to this podcast, you understand we had three uh, broadcast networks and then we had cable TV and then we had the Internet. Um, what about that progression gives us Trump? Um, I think of him as someone who was most popular sort of in, in, in an old media form. Um, you know, initially popular in the 80s. Yeah. We still really had three or four networks uh, and then had a burst through The Apprentice. And then I was assuming he was going to sort of fade away. Um, as as did we all, you know, I think, yeah. uh, you know, he was he was fading while The Apprentice was was on the air. But but um, structurally, the story that I'm trying to tell here that that tracks with Donald Trump's history as a public figure is this is basically a story of media fragmentation. Uh, it is. The, the period over which Donald Trump first became a media figure through when he became president, that's roughly like 1980 through, you know, 2016, obviously. 1980 is kind of a, a signal period in media. I, I got really fascinated with it while I was writing this book. That's the year of who shot JR. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, that's the year when CNN is founded, I believe, MTV is coming out the next year. So cable is like just starting to be a thing, but right. nobody I mean, really realizes no, it and yet. No, and cable is like really a, a marginal thing. Yes. So it is. So basically for all practical purposes, 1980 is the apex of the three network mass media audience. Now, you know, your audience is probably like pretty media savvy. Yeah. You know, they understand you obviously the business you know, uh, uh, consequences of this and just having three networks and then what cable did and so on. But this also has cultural consequences. I, I write this somewhere in the book, I think, but I'm a big believer that like TV is a very Marxist business. It's like the, 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 the content, the, 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 the format, the business determines the ideology. And when you have three networks, when you have this massive audience, uh, which means that for any show to succeed, it has to get, you know, 30 to 40 million people to not change the channel in order to stay right, on which the today air. would be literally unheard of. I mean, maybe Game of Thrones got that audience by yeah. the end of the cycle. Uh, yeah, and, and not not even that, depending on how you're massaging right. the numbers. So, so what you have is you have, you know, it, that encourages your sort of Ed Sullivan big tent approach, right? Like everything has to be for everybody. There, there, yeah. There's a principle. And that's, tons, that's, of, that's tons called, of mediocrity. Yeah, exactly. It, it's There's a lot of mediocrity and even better stuff sort of has to be like things that nobody hates. Yep. There, there's the there's a, a principle that actually originates in I think the early 70s, late 60s called the least objectionable program. Uh, which which is basically that stands for the notion that the point of a TV program in in this like monolithic mass media era is to not give people reasons to right. turn it off. Radio used to be the same way. Or I think radio still is, but the yeah. same same idea. Just don't just we don't want to give you the best stuff or the most compelling stuff. Just stuff that won't make you turn the dial. Right, because back then TV, you walked across the living room, you know, you turned it on, and just whatever was in the pipeline gushed into your living room. Uh, so and and so and so, content-wise, what that means is that TV has a different voice. Then the shows are different, uh, the manner of it is different. It needs to be sort of less provocative and less, you know, confrontational. Things have to be, you know, sort of more mild-mannered or happy or you know just you know kind of you know homogeneous and 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 uh, uh, undisturbing, um, and. Uh, I decided early on that one of the stories I was trying to tell with this book is like, you know, what a lot of political writers are doing, which is how did Donald Trump happen? Mm -hmm. Right. Which for me, for the point of this book is like, how did how, how did we TV character how did media? Trump. Yeah. And so and so how did TV get from where it was in 1980 to 2016? Well, OK, so I described TV in, in 1980. So TV in 2016 and what it evolves into when you get basic cable and digital cable, and HBO, and then the internet, and social media, et cetera, et cetera, is, is that with, with every iteration, the audience gets smaller, the, 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 you get more outlets. And that means that everything can be more individually targeted. For me as a TV critic, this has often been great. It means like a lot of you know, great art on television yep. that couldn't have existed before. Not because, you know, blah, 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 the mass audience is stupid, but because not everything is for everybody. And if you don't have to please 
50 million people with something that you're writing, you just have more freedom, right? Okay. But another thing that that means is that media becomes much more opt-in rather than, you know, it, it becomes more, more of a thing that you're seeking out rather than, you know, just sort of passively receiving. And everything is, you know, like cable channels each have, you know, MTVs targeting youth and, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, history channels targeting your grandpa. Like everything is aimed more at a specific audience and people that, 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 you know, expect to be catered to more. And so therefore the voice of culture generally becomes, you know, more polarized. So, more right. like so I, for, and, I get the atomization yeah, argument right. and, and there's a counter now. It says actually if you look at like pop hits and stuff, like they're getting bigger and bigger. They have bigger audiences than ever. But let's table that for, yeah. for now. Um, that would lead you to believe that a Donald Trump-like character would, would appeal to a very small sliver of yeah. the population. And maybe you could think through how that would work in a primary, but it doesn't explain how you get him winning a general election. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, basically Donald Trump as the, you know, politician has the same insight that Roger Ailes did, which is that, you know, we're in a cable era now, not a network era. And what you're doing is, is you're playing to a base. Um, and, uh, therefore, um, you are trying to super serve that base as much as possible, get an intense following, and then, you know, peel off as much of the other people as you can, uh, in order to, to, you know, carry you through the later stages of an but you election. But you would think that, that that strategy would get you to someone who could win a primary, win a couple of primaries, but not be palatable to enough people. Yeah. Right? You'd think you'd want the equivalent of a CBS show. Yeah. That wins the presidency. Which, you know, you could say was sort of, you know, what, you know, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats campaign right. was in 2016. Like, it's this big, broad tent and, you know, a, a general Generally election. A general election is like a, it's like two network uh, uh, TV. Um, you know, and honestly, I think that, you know, Donald Trump benefited a lot from the culture that conservative media had created. Uh, you know, Fox News, I think particularly, but, but you know, everything that imitated Fox News had had such an effect on, uh, you know, the Republican Party writ broadly and, and their voters that he was able to secure a much bigger chunk of them than anybody expected in the primary. And then that allowed him to sort of break the spirit of his opponents and win the nomination. Once he gets into the nomination, you know, I think he's, he's sort of got the, you know, the kind of CBS survivor, you know, a, a, a position myself as the, you know, outrageous male anti-hero strategy. Uh, so he ran a campaign that was, you know, it, it, masculinity was sort of the center. He kind of like ran as like, you know, the 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 head man in chief. Right. Uh, and you, and you, uh, again, uh, you trace that line from sort of, you know, Tony Soprano and, and, through yeah. uh, Fear uh, the Walking Dead series, Duck Dynasty, all these sort of characters that played pro wrestling. He fits nicely into that slot. Um, now that he's made this sort of, he's done what he's done, has that changed the rules, do you think, for sort of uh, popular political characters going forward, or is he an aberration? Um, I think that, you know, it's... I think the rules had already changed in that the, you know, the, 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 the sort of culture and fragmented media environment that he benefited from, uh, you know, that had been going on and that would have been going on whether or not he, he ran. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, politicians use culture and pop culture to tell stories, that was already a thing. I mean, Obama did it in his way, which is a very different way. Right. Uh, you know, but he was somebody who, you know, who who used media. I think that what in a way what Donald Trump did was to show us that it had changed a lot more and faster than we thought. You know, because I think that a lot of the read in the 2016 election was that, yeah, this is a powerful force in, you know, the Republican Party and our culture, et cetera. But, it, you know, as you were saying, it'll, it'll only get you so far. And I think it showed that, you know, it can get you a lot farther. If you right, use not just twenty five percent of the country, you can get up to a half. Yeah, and you can and you can and you can make yourself, you know, sort of into the protagonist of the election, something that like you know cable news is obsessed with because you know you say something outrageous whenever you open your mouth, and so attention's constantly focused on you. Now, now, that's not to say that I think that you know every president from here on out is going to be like Donald Trump. I think it does remind us that 
you have to tell stories that whether you like it or not, um, you know, elections are fought in this, you know, this 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 uh, arena of the media uh, where you have to wrestle for attention or else you don't. You know, you don't get to define the terms. Right. So so, so, so in that case, I don't think, you know, uh, you know, he's an aberration in the sense that, like, you know, I don't think Jeff Probst is going to be the next president. He had a a unique confluence of circumstances that came together that, you know, he was able to win without ever having been elected to audience. But like the the broader lessons like that's that's, you know, if if Joe Biden wins the election, you know, a a year and a half from now, that's that's not going to change back. At the the end of the book, you sort of get to this point where like. Assuming you have a shared political view uh, that looks pretty grim, uh, and then you sort of at the end say, "Well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way." There's other narratives. Um, you mentioned Obama, and he was sort of a Friday Night Lights guy versus a Walking Dead guy. Yeah, um, and you can tell other stories just because Trump got ahead uh, with this story. You can you can tell other ones. Uh, I pulled a quote from you: "Division in American politics isn't as much between parties or even ideologies, but between narratives." I thought that was pretty striking. Yeah, I liked it, um, but it, it does seem like Trump is 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 well. It doesn't seem like look if you look out in terms of the Democrats, there's no Trump like figure there. I guess Marianne Williamson is maybe the closest thing, to sort of oddball that no one's taking seriously. But she also has very very limited traction. Yeah, and, and and it's also that I mean you know look to be honest, I don't know that Donald Trump or the equivalent of a Donald Trump could have done the same thing in the Democratic Party because you know. Uh, for instance, you don't have something like Fox News exactly on the same side. There aren't like just direct correlates, right. um, you know. So you know, a a a a Democratic Trump, you know, because parties are different, is going to be a different version of that thing. You know, Oprah Winfrey could have might have been a model for you know a a kind of you know Democratic Trump. In in other words, you know, somebody who is basically like a a. God from the media pantheon entering politics and, you know, uh, 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 doing it that right. way. You know, that, that's or the example. rock was yeah. another. Or, or, or the rock. But it doesn't necessarily even mean, you know, celebrity. You know, again, you know, go back to, you know, the emphasis of Trump in some ways is Obama. You know, somebody who was very conversant with popular culture and adapted a media persona and used like the way that he engaged with the media and the public to tell tell stories that were that were metaphorical. You know, I mean, one reason that Make America Great Again works so well is that it is figurative language that you can map a lot of things on. You know, you can map you know racism on it or nostalgia. Or, you know, but you know it's it's this it's this one thing that says I'm going to bring these things back the way you used to like them, and people can pile whatever on that. You know, Barack Obama made the story of himself. You know, the first black man running for president, you know, basically saying, you know, this can, you know, expanding our national cast of characters can be good for everybody. There's a big swath of the country that that just heard first black man as president and said that's that in and of itself is a good thing. Yeah. Tells a good story about us, makes us feel better. Uh, yeah. And, and that, you know, again, it's, it's like, this is a little cornball, but you know, there, there are all sorts of, you know. There are cornball stories in popular culture that make this point, you know, you know, Jimmy Stewart movies, you know, going going back to the last century and, you know, Friday Night Lights and Lost that, you know, that say the commonality together achieves something greater than the individual that, that you know, and not you versus Trump. I alone can fix this versus versus I alone can fix this versus, you know, versus, you know, it, it's us against everybody else. And we can only succeed through the losses of our our enemies. Do you think without Trump that that uh, you you're, when you're writing about the last Democratic debates, which were in uh, on on CNN, and, and they had two nights plus a, an extra an episode just for the draw, and you were comparing a lot to Survivor <laughs> and, and reality yeah. shows. Um, obviously, that was first and foremost in your head because you were finishing this book. But would that have happened without Trump? Was TV just headed that way anyway, or is that a specific reaction to sort of the the carnival that is Trump? I think that would have happened without Trump anyway. I and mean, I think like CNN doing a draw, you know, honestly, you know, there has been this imperative in cable news since it existed that, you know... The, the 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 raison d'etre of, of cable news, in a way, is how do you tell a story even when there's not yep. a story? Yep. You know, it's 24 the hours. The founding myth is the Persian Gulf yeah. War, but you can debate that. Most of the time, there isn't a war. 
and yeah. you still got to talk about something. You need to fill the time, and hence that's where you get the poop cruise. Yes, that's where you exactly. get the, the plane disappearing and, and endless coverage of that, and or the guy in the balloon, the kid in the balloon, whatever it is. Balloon boy, yes. Yeah. One of, I think you know history will look back on, on that as like just one of the bit great figures of media. But yeah, so so. so you know, so so you have this need to create events. And so, you know, I think you would have things like CNN doing a live drawing. So you cannot blame in, Trump. In a big on, debate. You cannot blame Trump for, for, for three episodes of, a, of what should have been a two hour Democratic debate. I mean, you know, I will say, you know, Trump taught, you know, CNN that there can be huge ratings in an election over a, a year and a half if you just find ways to, you know, create constant conflict. Yeah. He but, is, but, he, but that has always that has always been a need of cable. And in fact, Fox News then, you know, took that and applied a partisan spin on that. And Donald Trump, because like his brain is basically like a TV camera, like he operates on his that wavelength his whole life, he was just uh, you know, it was this like perfect feedback loop. You know, he he understood the camera and the, the camera understood him and he knew that it always needed to eat and always fed it, uh, you know. But that dynamic would have existed whether he existed or not. Good. I mean, not good, but I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> for bad, really. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about TV in general and technology when we come back. Back with James Ponowazic. Woohoo! Three in a row. Got the name. Um... He's written a book called Audience of One. Go buy it. I, I do want to talk to you about your, your day job. Yeah. You're not writing books, uh, TV criticism. Um, great time, as you mentioned, to be writing about TV. There's lots of great TV. Really basic, dumb question. Given all the shows that are out and all the streaming services that are out, um, what's your rubric for figuring out what you want to write about? Will you not write about a show that is on a very niche network or a streaming service that only has a few million subscribers um, versus something that's on CBS? Do you feel, do you do you think that through? Sort of the um, availability of, of, of the show? Yes, yeah, sort of, but there's not like a, you know, hard, you know, and set flow chart. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the best of times and worst of times to be a TV critic because there's so much TV and so much of it is so good, but there is so much TV. Um, and I, the thing I always tell people is that I feel like TV criticism when I started it about 20 years ago was more like being a movie critic. You can kind of expect to watch everything. Uh, everything and you major. knew it was coming. Yeah. And now it's more like being a book critic. You know, you will never possibly consume, much less write about everything that's out there, and you're doing a lot of triage. But, you know, and, and so that's much more part of the job now. My rubric... It basically comes down to, is there something interesting for me to say about this? Um, and that relates to how big an audience I expect the thing to, you know, reach, how high profile it might be, uh, whether it's good or bad, you know, that that's where questions come in like, well, if something really sucks – and it's probably it's on a very small network and not many people are likely to see it. Maybe it's not worth my time to say this yeah. thing that you're never going to watch sucks. Sometimes those small things can suck in such an interesting way that there is, you, you know, a larger point. Well, you know, like I've done things like this. This comes back to I don't want to make everything come back to the book, but it touches on something that I mentioned in the book. Um, you know, last year there was that um, Tom Arnold show. Do you remember on? I think it was was it Viceland? Well, I've never seen it. I, I know it exists because there were stories about him getting in fights with who? Who did he get in fights with? And maybe nobody ever saw. Yeah, he got in a fight with. Uh, oh, sh was it? Did he get like in a uh, shoving match with Mark Burnett? Was it? Yes, I, I, and I someone's shirt head. was ripped. Um, and I think like Roma Downey put yeah. put something yeah. on social media. This is I, all like kind I, of a fog for me. So I'm I sorry. Read if, about those sorry tweets. if I'm libeling anybody, but but um, yeah, that that was yeah that did blow up around. The, but anyway, okay, yeah, you didn't watch it. I'm not sure how many people watched it at all. It was on a small network, and it wasn't very good. It was this you know sort of D-list celebrity who had this idea of how to kind of exploit obsession with with Trump. And say I'm going to make this show, and I'm going to try and you know dig up dirt yeah, on old find tapes on Trump. And of course, yeah, and, and you know he didn't find anything. And you know that was a case where it's a case this show not very good. And if I didn't mention it, you know my readership might never heard about it. But there was something to say, which was is this sort of mania um, that has kind of gripped you know particularly the like hashtag resistance 
part of the you know the 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 country that there's got to be some like horcrux out there that will destroy Donald Trump you know and he's been on camera so much of the time and you know he's this creature who is created by the media surely he'll be destroyed by the media there's an n-word tape from the apprentice mm-hmm. or there's some tape from a trump tower elevator or there there's you know a, a tape on howard street some some magic thing will destroy him fix this and that is to me is such a fascinating almost like poignant idea that even if the show per se isn't you know that worth writing about the the the, the thing the thing that it makes me think about is interesting enough yeah. and you know to me like that's that's kind of what you know, cultural criticism needs to do. Why do I care about this thing? And f- why, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who like, I will often read reviews of stuff, not just TV shows, that I will never, you know, watch or go to. What about the, the converse where it's, this is a giant show, everyone watches it, um, but you just aren't compelled by it. I don't know what that show would be. I mean, I know you, you seem ambivalent about Game of Thrones. Let's, but I think about a lot, um, uh, Big Bang Theory, I don't know. I yeah, written about much about it, but I was always struck by the fact that it's a huge show that in my world no one talks about, and I never read people like you talking about it. Now maybe I've missed it, so apologies if you did. No, no, no. But stuff like that where it has a huge audience, but it, it just leaves you cold. Yeah, I mean, you know, like with with Big Bang Theory, there are probably you know very interesting things to write about that that I wasn't able to write just because you know I I didn't vibe with it. I actually didn't, you know, I didn't hate The Big Bang Theory. I hated it when it was first on the air. I think it was not that good a show when it was on its first season or so. Like, it was much more sort of, like, like superior to its characters, mm-hmm. making fun of them for being nerds. And I think it became much better, but it was, like, sort of the, the kind of show that, you know, if I saw it on an airplane, I'd gladly watch it. But, uh, you know, particularly with, with uh, sitcoms, yeah, I think th- there's often the situation where there's just not enough meat in it necessarily to, you know, write a lot of things about it, even if it's very, very popular. Did you ever have the cultural equivalent of post the 2016 election, everyone went out into the the hinterlands to talk to real Americans. We still do these stories, still run these stories. What does a real person in a, in a diner in wherever think about yeah, yeah, yeah. the world? Did you ever think, you know, maybe I've, I've been missing culturally um, there's shows that the that, that Times readership or what you conceive of the Times readership isn't isn't familiar with, but they should know more about it because it's enormously popular. Did it? Did I do like like ten reviews of NCIS? Yeah. After did, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I I did not. Maybe I'm just not introspective enough. But like I feel, I feel like I kind of have to watch very you know broadly uh, in my job to you know uh, do the job that so I feel doing. like you're already doing that. Like you know, I feel like you know, I got I, I do think that there was. A lot of um, interesting sort of data journalism that was done after the election on, you know, the Times did some of this on like, you know, what sort of television and so on does Red America watch and Blue America, you know, watch. Um, one thing that you know, that, that uh, conservative Americans are very into reality TV. There's like a very interesting overlap. But I've written a ton about reality TV and watched a lot of reality TV, uh, you know, I don't want to be like totally, you know, patting myself on the back here because you know it's not like I'm politically prescient or anything, but it, I think it does ex- expose you at least to a lot of what people are outside, you know, what a lot of people outside your own class are, you know. I, I definitely, I definitely, I've always felt that I kind of have to like guard for that, you know. Like if you're in the media right now, every single person that you know watches and loves Succession. Yep. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's one of it's it's like a, what, do I, what I say is like what, you know, what Mad Men used to be, which is that when, even more niche, even more niche. I'm pretty sure a smaller total audience. But, you know, I used to say that, you know, if I went into like a, a, a editorial board meeting of, you know, any publication and when Mad Men was on, had somebody write down a slip of paper what they thought the audience of, you know, Mad Men was, they guess it was like 20 million mm-hmm. you know, or something. Like no, that. No, no, I mean, the succession like is like built specifically for my Twitter feed. So Yeah. So I do try to, and I watch Succession, but, you know, I do try to, like, avoid overindulging yeah. those sort of, you know, niche interests. But, you know, you you can only do that so much. If something doesn't, if something doesn't genuinely interest me, I'm probably not going to be able to write something good about it. I can't fake that. Yeah, that makes sense. Earlier on, we were talking about the, the, the fragmenting uh, 
TV world and, and the various cable networks, and they all going off after a different audience. We're seeing a whole slew of streaming services launch. There's some really obvious things like, you know, we, know, we sort of know what Disney is going to be, right, and mm -hmm. who they're targeting. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that, to me, doesn't seem to have a specific identity. I think in Netflix for a while, I think we sort of, at least in chattering classes, would think of it as the next HBO. It's clearly they're much broader. I've watched some really smart British comedies on Amazon, but I don't think it was Amazon as the place that I would go for that necessarily. It's just where they were. Does the idea that the the channel, the brand, the network having, a, and a, having an identity make sense to you? Or do you think that just goes away and everyone's just sort of shooting out shows and you don't, you don't, you don't even know where they're coming from. They're just popping up. You know, I, I don't know. I would say that, you know, I think that still makes sense in cable. And, you know, the question is how much longer cable will be a thing. You know, I think it will continue to be for the foreseeable future. You know, I, I still think it, it makes sense for FX to have a brand identity, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Netflix is just so fascinating as a phenomenon. I'm sure there, there are great books to be written about that because it is sort of – it is both extending the project of cable TV, which is to make everything extremely niche targeted. And like, you know, the algorithm knows exactly who mm -hmm. you are and what you've watched and for how long and serves you up menu choices based on that. And yet it's also taking TV way back to something where you are offering something for everybody. Yeah. It's just, you know... When everybody looks at it, they see a different reflection. Yeah, I think the of, idea that like compresses everything on the dial the into one into one app, yeah, and then gives everyone a different version of what that what that grid would look like. Yeah, but like, yeah, for twenty years now, you know, we have, uh, you know, twenty years or more, we've been learning this uh, media notion that you know channels have identities and personalities, and Netflix is, you know, it's it's the Borg. It just it absorbs everything. And you know, is there a Netflix personality? Netflix's personality is like whatever thing you like to watch on TV. So <laughs> this is like the the biggest cop out answer. Um, but you know, I don't know how that is going to change TV or video entertainment. I just sense it's going to change it a lot. In everyone ways I talk to, anyone who runs anything on the business side, you know, talks about this stuff. Brand, 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 brand's the most important yeah. thing. I think, you know, in the world where Netflix is an aggregator and Apple TV is an aggregator and a few more things are aggregators, they would everyone would like to believe that their brand is going to get attached to the app or the, the grid or whatever it is. I just think a lot of folks are, will be hard-pressed to tell you that they watch Mad Men on AMC. Yeah. Or whatever the thing is that they watch. Um, I saw you stumping for Danish uh, TV this morning. Oh, Borgen. Okay. Yes. So let's let's since you've covered that on your Twitter feed. Um, before, in addition to telling people to, to read your book, to buy your book, audience of one. Uh, what's one TV show they probably aren't watching but should watch? One TV show people aren't Champion watching but niche, should watch. A niche, a niche bit of programming. You like. uh, Lodge Forty Nine, okay. which uh, like Bad Men is also on AMC and probably nobody knows that and you may not watch it on AMC. Uh, but it's this fantastic small show that is kind of like if you took a later Thomas Pynchon novel set in a surfer community, made a TV show out of it. Um, it's, you know, kind of about nothing and it's also about the universe. And this stars the guy, is it Kurt Russell's kid? Yes, Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. Who was, had that great episode of uh, Black Mirror. Uh yeah 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 um Black Mirror which which people probably have heard of yeah but yeah now I'm I'm uh uh okay Lodge big stumper for for big evangelist for Lodge Forty Nine good done and go get audience of one James Ponowazik thank you for coming in thank you so much Peter thanks to you guys for listening thanks also to Lonnie Carter who recorded this to my new producer Zachary Mack welcome Zach I think Golda might return at some point Zach waves. Thanks to our advertisers who are bringing this show to you for free. We'll be back next week with another episode. See you soon.